Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Today, Dr. Andrew Perry is joined by Dr. Gaznat Shabudin from the University of Cape Town. And they have a really interesting discussion all about modern genomic techniques for the identification of genetic causes of cardiomyopathy, the progress that's been made in the last decade, and what this means for clinicians caring for patients with cardiomyopathy. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for meeting with me today, Hasnat. May I have you introduce yourself for our audience? I am uh, Associate Professor Hasnat Shabuddin. I am the Director of Cardiovascular Genetics in Cape Town at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, and we study heart disease. Excellent. Thank you. Your paper entitled Modern Genomic Techniques in the Identification of Genetic Causes of Cardiomyopathy was recently published in our journal, and I wanted to visit with you to talk more about that paper. So thank you for joining with me. Definitely my pleasure. I will just give a note to our audience before we get started that it will be beyond the scope of today's podcast to discuss the indications for genetic testing. And for today's purposes, we'll simply state that there are situations, clinical situations, in which genetic testing can be useful for the diagnosis and management of certain cardiomyopathies. Some of those examples may include sudden cardiac death, conduction disease, and early onset heart failure. So with that kind of uh, caveat out of the way, let's, um, let me turn it over to you, Hasnat, and just so that our, our entire audience is on the same page, could you just describe you know, the genomic sequencing techniques and what are the various different types of techniques that are available to us currently? So currently over the past, I would say 10, 12 years, there's been an explosion of technologies in, on the genetic front um, and they're called next generation sequencing technologies. And the ones I thought we would focus on today is targeted sequencing, whole exome sequencing and whole genome sequencing. Um, I think we have a mixed audience, so um, I'm going to try and just be as, as clear as I can without getting into the mumbo jumbo, uh, the genetic mumbo jumbo of it. So the three types that I just mentioned are technologies used for sequencing the whole genome. Uh, the question you as a researcher ask is, do I want to sequence all of the genes in the genome, which according to the NIH is about 30,000 30, genes, or do I only want to sequence a small portion of genes because I know what genes are involved in this particular type of disease? And that's usually 10 to 15 to 50 genes, so small number of genes. So just to put things into perspective, the human genome contains about 30 billion bases or letters, if you will. But if you only want to look at the genes, the genes only make up a very small percentage of our genome, and that's about 1%. The rest, the 99% of our genome, scientists don't know what they do. We call it junk DNA, but obviously that's a misnomer. And we are still learning um, in, in the learning phases of uh, studying that portion of the DNA. So in future, um, we think functions might emerge that would uh, give a function to these large chunks of, of junk DNA. So now just to get back to the techniques, the three techniques that I mentioned, targeted sequencing is exactly as the name says. With this technology, you can look at a specific number of genes in the human genome. For example, you can look at a small number of genes that you know causes heart disease, 
or genes that cause cancer. So you can contact a lab and ask them to run a cancer panel or a heart disease panel on a patient. And on this panel, there'll be a small number of genes that um, is known to cause this particular type of disease. That's what targeted sequencing does. It allows you to look at a small number of genes. Whole exome sequencing, again, this technology allows you to look at all 30,000 genes in the human genome. Remember I said before, that's about 1% of the genome. So usually we use this technique if we don't know what the cause of a disease is. So then we go exploring in all 30,000 genes. So then the last um, technique I mentioned is whole genome sequencing. And again, it's exactly as the name says. With this technique, you can sequence all 30,000 genes, which is the 1% of the genome, as well as all the junk DNA, which if you recall, I said that makes up about 99% of our genome. So with these three techniques, you're in a relatively good space if you want to find uh, a disease-causing mutation. That was perfect. I might just uh, ask one clarifying question about the, the technique that's most commonly used for clinical purposes. Which one of those would that be? So usually it's targeted sequencing. Diagnostic laboratories go usually for targeted sequencing because they try not to go exploring. And researchers like us, we do exploratory research. So we use whole exome sequencing usually. And, and when you also decide between these three, it's also a matter of space. You can imagine if you're only looking at a small number of genes, the, the data that comes off the machines is going to be uh, small. And if you get the bigger you go, the more amount of space that you'll need. So for whole exome sequencing, you'll need a huge amount of space. And if you want to sequence 100, people's DNA on using whole genome sequencing, that's huge storage capacity that's needed. So when you're looking for specific number of genes, like diagnostic laboratories, they would go for targeted sequencing, because usually they would say this patient has heart disease, and we know we're looking in this very particular panel of 100, of 100 known genes. Uh, so that's what it is. Diagnostic laboratories will use targeted sequencing. Um, small laboratories like us in uh, the University of Cape Town, we usually do a bit of both, but because we're trying to find the new causes of disease, we do whole exome sequencing also in conjunction to targeted sequencing. Brilliant. Thank you. So now let's talk about some of the possible results that you can get. And maybe first let's address what could be the possible results from a targeted sequencing test that someone sends out? So we normally say roughly three different types of, of variants. Variants is just the, um, the type of mutation. Um, so you get a, a pathogenic mutation, and it's exactly as the name says, pathogenic. And then you get the variant of unknown significance, and then you get a non-pathogenic mutation. Um, so the pathogenic mutation is... The, the variant that's responsible for causing your disease, whatever that might be, that's a pathogenic mutation. And if you have a variant of unknown significance, so this one is a bit tricky. So a variant of unknown significance is a genetic change whose impact on the individual's disease risk is not yet known. So whereas the one before, we know that it's causing disease because experiments had been done before, um, a research has begun in, on animal models that show that this mutation definitely causes disease. Now you go to the one that we're not so sure of. So we have a criteria 
that has to be met before we call something disease causing. And sometimes not all of the criteria are met. So in that instance, we don't have enough information to determine if a variant is normal or disease causing. And so it's borderline. And that's what we call a variant of unknown significance. It's, it's more experiments and more tests is needed in order to call it um, pathogenic. And the final one is um, non-pathogenic, and it's exactly like the word, um, the, you know, the, the word says, it's non-pathogenic. Um, the variants do not cause disease. So as humans, we have a lot of um, benign changes in our genome that occur at non-crucial positions. Um, so the mutations usually occur at crucial positions. And um, the benign uh, variants, there are very many of them. And that's why we as scientists have to very carefully investigate these variants before we can assign um, a classification as to whether they're pathogenic or not. So what are some of those criteria that are required to define something as a pathogenic mutation? Well, the quickest one we have to do is we look in if something is um, uh, in, occurs within a population, we have to determine if, if something is disease causing, the hypothesis is that it doesn't occur very frequently in the, in the background population, in the control population, if you will. Mm -hmm. Normal John won't have it. So it has to be rare. And then um, that, that's one of the criteria. And then we also look at the type of mutation that it results in. Like I mentioned, you have some variants that occur um, just randomly within in non-crucial spots. And some variants occur within a crucial spot, like in amino acid, there are certain positions within the amino acid that's crucial. So we look at the position as well of the, of the change, where is it occurring? And then we look at consensus as well. Um, the, uh, across the genome, species try to maintain um, a set number of genes because they're important. So they try to keep them the same. And, and so we look across species to see if something is conserved across species, which would indicate a strong indicator that um, it's important. So those are just some of the minor. And we also do, um, there's a lot of bioinformatics tools, like prediction tools that allows you to see what happens if this mutation happens in a certain position. So that's also one of the criteria that's used. Excellent. Very interesting. Cool. Thank you. So getting into some of the uh, meat of your paper, you know, in this review article, you're summarizing the findings of genetic testing in various types of cardiomyopathy and reporting that, you know, known genes do not account for all of the cases. So I think, you know, it was reported that, you know, somewhere in the order of 30 to 60% of cases can be explained by the genetic variants that we can detect. Right. So that kind of begs the question about how do we discover the remaining, you know, 40 to 70% of those cases, if, you know, that presumably they're from a genetic cause, how might we further evaluate those or what techniques might be used there? Andrew, that's such a fantastic question. So when mutations cause big changes in the gene and the protein, um, and it's more obvious to find these variants, and that's when you find the 30 to 60% that I mentioned, right? Because these mutations, because they occur in crucial spots, causes the protein that they're supposed to be making, um, creates a, a shorter protein, they change the conformation of the protein, or they alter the function of the protein. So they're easier to detect than um, 
other types of mutations. So once you have found the 30 to 60%, you're now left with the ones that were not so obvious. So it gets more complicated when you look at variants with smaller effects on the protein. Now you're in uncharted territory. So uh, the majority of the cardiovascular disease um, genes uh, occurs within a, a polygenic background. It's multiple genes are involved and it's additive. So small mutations are added together to give a certain, um, you know, we call them phenotype, um, what mm -hmm. you see in the patient. And, and obviously it's not just genetics. If you remember there, there's an interplay between the environment and lifestyle as well. If a person's smoking, if they're obese. So you have all of these additive effects with the genes. And then you also add to that the, the fact that the person is smoking and the person, you know, that the lifestyle is, is all wrong. So that also now gets added to it. And this is also stuff we have to factor in. Um, in the rest of the 40 to 70% of uh, the variants that we're trying to discover. So your question, how do we discover the remaining? Well, we have to do this very, very carefully because we know they're not going to be as obvious. Wow. Okay. That sounds very challenging to then be able to piece <laughs> together all of these yes. you know, small additive properties that then create um, that create the some uh, some disease. That sounds... I always, I always tell my students, we end up being Sherlock Holmes. You know, you have to look at all these little clues and you have to piece them all together. And then you have to tell the story because now, you know, you have to listen to the to the background of the patients as well, because now you have to do the clinical history of the patient. And now you look at your genes, do your genes. Can your genes explain what you're seeing phenotypically that's displayed with the patient? So we try to build the story by putting all the pieces of the puzzles together. Excellent. And I presume delving a little bit more in that, are most people currently focusing on whole exome sequencing in this uh, sort of research, or are people starting to delve into whole genome sequencing to also further evaluate that? From the paper, you can see that there aren't that very many articles that's written on whole genome sequencing because it's, it's discoveries, re research. It's when you find novel variants in novel genes that's causing heart disease, you have to functionally show that that mutation is disease causing. And which means you have to take a mutation that you had just found in the, the DNA of a human, and you have to put it into a functional model, which is usually a cellular model or an animal model. So you can imagine trying to show that something that you found in a human is now showing disease or similar type of disease in an animal model. So, that, and I think that's what the reason why it's not translating. I'm sure a lot of people are, are starting to do whole genome sequencing because um, we're also starting to look into it. But again, space is an issue. Storage mm -hmm. um, of the data is an issue. But we're doing lots of whole exome sequencing. And um, we are finding lots of new stuff. I mean, I can't divulge anything yet. But, um, you know, we, we are seeing that there's lots of novel uh, variants in, in our DNA. And, um, and it's not that easy because now we have to do functional models to show that these genes um, do cause cardiovascular disease. Wow. I suppose we'll just have to wait with bated breath then since uh, I'm not going to get you to Side spill anything. Down. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you touched on this briefly. And this kind of leads to another question that I had that it may expose more of my ignorance than anything else, but it's my understanding that in doing research with genetic associations with disease without targeting genes in specific, you know, if we're going under discovery that we really need large numbers of patients. And I wonder how we can 
or how we overcome that obstacle when a number of these cardiomyopathies are relatively rare outcomes. That's exactly right. So what we spoke about previously was where you use complete genes, you basically zoom right down to the base level and you're able to screen whole sections of the chromosome and the genes at the same time, right? Um, but with genome-wide association, it's different. Genome-wide association allows you to um, associate specific genetic variations with particular diseases or genes. So um, I was trying to think of an analogy for this. So with this technique, you look at um, the whole genome at a single glance using single base changes, right? So if I have to think about this, so, so I don't know, you have governors and senators, right? That represents a district or a state. And so this is what these single nucleotides are. They are beacons, if you will, that represent certain portions of your genome, right? And they will always be found in a region of a certain gene. So these single bases can be found about a thousand bases apart, if you will. And what they do is they can be used as guides. So they can show you that, um, you know, they, they come up in, in a, say for instance, in heart disease, you always find this single nucleotide change in this region. So you can either, there's either a gene in this region, because now you will start exploring, why is this um, SNP, is what we call it, single nucleotide polymorphism. Why is this SNP? always popping up in this population of diseased individuals. And then you can zoom in. What is in this region that this SNP is linked to that is, what, what is there? And sometimes there is a gene, sometimes there isn't. Uh, but what it does is it guides you. So sometimes these SNPs can be used to determine your risk of developing certain diseases. They, they will always be found in heart disease individuals, if that's what it is or it can, um, it can show you that there's another gene in this area that you might want to, to look at. So genome-wide association can be used to pinpoint you to a region of the genome of interest when studying a particular disease. Brilliant, awesome. Thank you so much. Um, let's bring it back a, a little bit to the bedside here. And let's say I have, I'm, you know, encountering a patient and I send out genetic testing and I receive some results and I'm wondering how to now best interpret or, or proceed forward with this, um, with their patient and their results. So I sent off, you know, targeted, um, a sequencing test and I got the result that there was no pathogenic mutation found, no variant of unknown significance found. How am I able to rest assured there, or what is the best way or optimal way of thinking about that patient going forward? So I remember right from the beginning, I explained the, the, the question that we as researchers ask, or you as a clinician ask, um, am I, do I know what I'm looking for? Am I looking for a small amount of, um, am I looking at a small number of genes, or am I looking at the whole genome? So you just said that I looked at a genetic panel. Right. So that means mm -hmm. you were looking at a small proportion of genes and it's usually between 50 to 100, I think, genes that you are looking at. So if that comes back negative, that just means whatever genes that you were looking at on the panel, that was negative. It does not mean that there is the rest of the 29,990 genes that you still need to look at. So we as scientists can only tell you that you were negative for the panel, but we can't tell you that you don't have a genetic a mutation in some other gene that was not on the panel. So if you want to find something that if, if it's definitely shown that it's 
disease causing or within the family, which shows a segregation within the family. And when we say segregation, we mean that your mother has it, the next generation has it, like the a brother has it. And, you know, you can also show, so right through the lineage within your family, you can see various people are affected with heart disease in various generations of within the family. So, and that's where we look for as geneticists is, you know, is there uh, a familial uh, aspect to this disease? And then when it's clearly shown that there is a genetic component, then, and panel sequencing comes back negative, well then, I would advise you to go do possibly whole exome sequencing. Go explore the rest of the 30,000 genes and hopefully you get as many affected individuals in your family as possible. You take their DNA and you ask for it to be sequenced and hopefully all of the affected will have the same mutation. And that's what you're looking for. Something that all of the affected individuals have in common. And, and that's when you know you're on the right track. Brilliant. Uh, this has been a very informative uh, conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, uh, to talk with me. Um, just in some kind of some summaries or, or wrap up comments, what are your, uh, what are the things that you're looking forward to in the field? What are the challenges that need to be overcome? What is your, I don't know, the, the current temperature of the gauge of the field as it stands? I love what I do. And especially, you know, if you were to ask me this back 15 years ago, um, and I've been doing this for the past 22 years. 15 years ago, is it was such a big deal to be in the laboratory because one whole gene, we would take two years to screen. You imagine two years to screen one gene. And when next generation sequencing happened about 12 years ago, um, we are now able to do the whole genome, all 30,000 genes within a matter of uh, a few hours. So where it took you years, now just a few hours. So you can imagine this is such an exciting time in genetics. And um, we've got still so much to learn. So we want to get to the point where we are able to offer personalized medicine to patients, where we've done a genetic profile on you, where we know what your high-risk mutations are and what your, you know, what mutations increase your risk of heart disease, and then to be able to offer you treatment options through either drug therapy or actually, wouldn't this be the holy grail to be able to remove the faulty copy and replace it with a normal copy? We know about CRISPR-Cas9, right? That's the buzzword all over the place. Now, that technique is able to, you know, cut in and replace as well. And who knows, 10 years ago, who would have thought about next generation sequencing? So 10 years from now, who knows, we might be able to use technologies like CRISPR-Cas9 to replace the faulty copy with a normal copy. And I believe we'll get there. So um, yeah, that's my hope for the for the future, and I know I actually know we're going to get there. So who knows what the next six ten years will bring? Excellent, your enthusiasm is contagious. I really appreciate <laughs> your love uh, what I do. Yes, uh, I really appreciate everything. It's been a great conversation. Uh, thanks so much. I look forward to hearing more uh, work coming out of your lab and others in the future. Thank you so much, Andrew. And yeah, you keep well. Mm -hmm.